The following podcast is from Tabernacle Baptist Church in Cartersville, Georgia. Thanks for listening. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, and I hope you do, I want to invite you to find your place in Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, and this morning I'm continuing my series of messages entitled The End. The End. And we are in Mark chapter 13, looking at a sermon preached by Jesus in the first century. And the title of this sermon was The Olivet Discourse. And Jesus here gives us truth concerning the end of time. In doing so, Jesus showed himself to be a true prophet, the, the one who can give the future as if it is history. He proved that he was the Son of God. Interesting, when you look at Jesus' prophecy, Jesus was focused on events, but Jesus' main focus in giving prophecy was on how we as his children should respond. Jesus' main focus wasn't necessarily on happenings, occurrences, timelines, or characters with the end of time, though he did speak of those things. Jesus, however, had this primary focus on how the children of God are to be ready to respond. And so with that in mind, I want to look at the words of Jesus in Mark 13, verses 14 through 23, and share with you this morning on the subject, lessons from the future. Lessons from the future. Now, we know that there are things in the past that can teach us great lessons, right? Uh, This past Sunday evening, we were at a get-together for our life group, And I was talking with some adults from my life group, and I saw the boys, they brought a football with them to the gathering, and I saw them playing football with a group of kids there, and the thought, I think, crossed my mind, boy, it's uh, looking a little rough, I better say something, and I got distracted for a moment trying to be pastor and talk to all the people that were there, right? Next thing I know, my son, my oldest son's walking up to me with his arm hanging and saying, Dad... I think I broke my arm. Sure enough, we ended up in the emergency room that evening. Monday, he got a cast on that arm. After tears were wiped away and he had recovered, we took a moment to talk to him about playing too rough. Lesson from the past. Sometimes we gain lessons from the past. Your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has given this chapter of Scripture by inspiration of the Holy Spirit because there are some lessons from the future that he wants you to learn. I believe this morning, if we don't take heed and hear the words of Jesus, we're going to miss out on some important lessons for life. We won't have the peace and joy that the Lord wants us to have. We may not be used for him in this messed up world if we don't hear these lessons. We may get spiritually sidetracked and discouraged. We may become lame and apathetic in the Christian race this morning if we don't hear the words of Jesus. So let's look at God's word. and Let's be thankful that we have from Jesus the ability to see the future as if it's history. And let's hear some lessons from our Lord concerning the future. Y'all ready for this? And number one this morning from Jesus, let's see this great lesson from the future. Jesus has paid for 
our sins. It's a great lesson, something we need to keep in our hearts and minds as we struggle with trials and temptations in this earth. We need to always be mindful that Christ has taken care of our biggest problem. You see, the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth, created humankind to live in a forever relationship with him. Initially, this earth was a perfect place with no brokenness, no death, no diseases. There was no sin on earth originally. Perfection in paradise was God's original intent. We know the first man and the first woman rebelled at some point against God's plan. And as a result, this three-letter word called sin entered into the human condition. And since then, we have all been marred and marked by brokenness and pain and confusion. And our world right now, even as I speak, is reeling in the throes of the fall of original sin. But the good news of the Bible is this, God loved each and every one of us so much, God loved humankind so much that he gave his son, 100% God, 100% man, Jesus Christ, to live on earth the perfect life we could never live. And that Jesus went to a cross and he died for our sins. He paid the price that we should all have to pay for our sins, death separation, alienation from God. He was buried in a tomb. He cried out on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Showing the purpose of his life and death. He paid for our sins. He took upon himself the price we should all have to pay for our sins. Separation from God. And because of Jesus, we know in this life, we have forgiveness. We know when human history comes to an end and there are people who are cast from the presence of God forever, we don't have to be in that number. We can live forever with God in the new heaven and the new earth because Jesus has paid for our sins. Now we see this in the passage before us in verse number 14. Jesus speaks of his great work. How so? Look at what we read in verse 14. Jesus said, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, parentheses, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, notice that Jesus speaks of this thing called the abomination of desolation. What is that? The abomination of desolation. I don't know about you, but those aren't two words I use on a regular basis. I mean, just anyone in casual vernacular this past week used the words abomination of desolation? Anybody ever use those words in the course of daily events? I mean, we read this and we think, what is Jesus talking about? It's these types of verses that make some people just throw up their hands and say, hey, it's of no use studying Bible prophecy. We can't figure these things out. It'll all work out in the end. Well, I'm not really of that persuasion. I think the Lord, 2 Timothy 3, 16, Jesus gave these words by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he knows they can be helpful to us. What is the abomination of desolation? Well, that first word, if you're taking notes, abomination, 
speaks of something that is disgusting or repulsive. Abomination, something that is disgusting or repulsive. That word desolation speaks of something that is made empty or useless. So you got two words. Here one speaks of something that is disgusting or repulsive. The other one speaks of something being made empty or useless. So yesterday we're eating supper and one of the kids starts to tell the story about being at a friend's house. And at this friend's house they've got a cat. And this cat caught a rabbit and killed it. I can't remember what all happened to this rabbit, but we start to hear about it at the supper table, about it being decapitated and gutted by this cat. And about that time, one of the younger children, who is of his dad's persuasion, says, oh my goodness, this is disgusting, I can't even eat. Jumps up and leaves the supper table. Something was disgusted, repulsive, therefore the meal to him becomes useless. He can't even eat. Jesus is speaking of such an event that happened in human history, and he is prophesying of such an event as well. What is he talking about? He's talking about, in a religious sense, a disgusting, repulsive event that took place And the place of worship, the temple, the holy of holies, the place where sacrifices were offered. This event was foretold of in Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. God in his foreknowledge knew that in human history an abomination, something disgusting, would happen multiple times at the temple that would make the temple useless for God's people, the Jews. One such event happened in 168 B.C. when an individual named Antiochus Epiphanes went into the Holy of Holies and erected an altar to Zeus on the burnt offering altar, and he there sacrificed a pig and made the Holy of Holies through that disgusting thing, useless in the eyes of God's people. And Jesus here might have been referencing back to that event, but notice he's speaking of the future. He's speaking of something that would happen in his disciples' lifetime. We believe according to human history in A.D. 70, we know that the Roman emperor Titus invaded Jerusalem and he went to the temple complex and did some profane things. And Jesus here noticed the Son of God, the one true prophet, pronouncing and announcing that event ahead of time. I mean, go look up on Wikipedia, Siege of Jerusalem, and read about history, then come to the Word of God and see Jesus telling about it ahead of time. Jesus is God, the one that can give the future as if it is history. But then consider why that Siege of Jerusalem took place. Why did the Lord allow an abomination to take place that would render the temple complex useless even to this day. Jews are not offering sacrifices. 
Why did God in his providence and sovereignty allow this to happen? I'll tell you why. The Lord knew there was no longer a need for a place of sacrifices because Hebrews 9, 11 through 15, a more perfect sacrifice had been made through the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And this abomination of desolation reminded us that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away human sins. The blood of bulls and goats could never fully clean our consciences to serve the living God. We needed the God-man, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world to come to earth and live a spotless, sinless life on our behalf. And he went to the cruel cross of Calvary and died for our sins. And now for those of us who are in Christ, we can claim the words of Romans. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Oh, Jesus here speaks about the future, but he reminds us of his atonement. He reminds us of his redemption. Why does he do that? Because he knows the last days bring a lot of fear, a lot of worry, a lot of insecurity, and a lot of angst. Do you feel that fear, worry, insecurity, and angst? As you consider the confusion and corruption in our world, as you see deceit and disaster, as you see immorality increasing, do you not feel fear and worry growing in your soul? Know this, Jesus has reminded us in the end of days there will be turbulent times. The greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And notice, friend, remember, friends, as you see all of the problems in this world, you can remember your sins are forgiven, and one day you will live in a new heaven and a new earth with no problems. As you see confusion and deceit, manipulation and lying amongst leaders, amongst people in society, know this, because you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, you are heading to a hereafter in which truth will rule and reign forever and ever. So let your heart be filled with gospel joy and peace and know this lesson from the future. Christ has paid for our sins. Keep preaching that reality to yourself. Number two this morning, I want you to see from God's word that the second lesson from the future, we've got a job to do. Jesus reminds us here through speaking of the abomination of desolation that a greater sacrifice has come, but he also reminds us that we as his children, as long as we are on planet earth, we have a job to do for him. Jesus here speaks of this. The end of verse 14, we believe, we see a hint towards this. Where he says, those in Judea must flee to the mountains. In other words, Jesus says, disciples, in your lifetime, you're going to see a second abomination of desolation. When your generation sees these things, they should immediately run to the mountains surrounding Jerusalem and throughout Judea. Why? Hide from the Romans, seek shelter. Run for your lives. Flee to the mountains. Says a man on the housetop must not come down or get in or go in to get anything out of his house. 
The man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Jesus uses two practical circumstances from the first century to stress the importance of fleeing immediately when Titus and his soldiers show up. First, he says, is if you're on your rooftop, don't even go into your house to get stuff. Just flee. The first century world, a common home had a flat roof that was often used as a patio. We see in Daniel chapter 6, verse number 10, even before the first century and the ancient Near East that homes had such a rooftop, Daniel went on to his rooftop to pray. It's usually a cool place where one could catch a breeze. Many times people would dry fruits and vegetables on these rooftops. It's a place for family gatherings. Instead of being down in a stuffy house without air conditioning, you could be on the rooftop and catch a breeze. Access to the rooftop was gained from an outside, not inside, outside staircase. Jesus says, if you are on your rooftop and you hear that the Romans have invaded Judea, go down the stairs and don't even go into your house to get clothing and food. Run. Then he speaks of one who is working in the field. Usually in the first century, one would have inner garments. A man would have an outer robe or a cloak or a coat around those inner garments. When one worked, they often shedded or got rid of that outer garment. We see Jesus doing on that one occasion, fishing, strips down to that inner garment to swim and meet Jesus. When one farmed, they normally, as they approached the field, would place their their coat, their outer coat, their cloak on the edge of the field, and they would get into the middle field and get busy picking or planting, harvesting crops. And Jesus tells people living in the generation of his disciples that, hey, if you are working in a field and you hear reports of the Romans invading and you figure the abomination of desolation is near, don't even go to the edge of the field to get your coat. Instead, flee, run for the mountains. Jesus gives this interesting instruction. Notice that he wanted his disciples and those living in their generation, to protect and to preserve their lives as long as possible. Sure, 10 out of the 11 remaining apostles would die martyrs' death for Christ, and the other, the 11th, would suffer exile on the island of Patmos. Yet still, Jesus, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as God instructed them, preserve and protect your life as long as possible. Why did Jesus give these words? Well, remember, his words were originally written to a Roman audience during a time in which Nero, the Roman emperor, was cruelly persecuting the church, leading many to a horrific martyr's death. Christians were being fed to wild animals. Others were being burned alive. For Nero, it was like a sport, like a circus, one tells us, to have Christians put to death. When we read 1 Corinthians 13, 3, we know that there was a problem in the early church in which many gladly, perhaps too willingly, went to a martyr's death. kind of became a thing of pride in the first century. Uh, People 
allowed themselves to be martyred and killed without any resistance, supposing it was a means of godliness. That's why Paul would say when writing the love chapter, if I give my body to be burned in the flames and have not love, I'm nothing. Paul wanted to remind the church that martyrdom is not a pathway to spiritual maturity. It does not earn you extra kudos in heaven. Instead, love. Love. It's the main method of Christian living. And Jesus here combats the same problem in the first century. Saying, run, flee, protect your life as long as possible. Yes, you may be persecuted and you may be killed for the faith. Don't fight back and use their methods, but preserve and protect your life as long as possible. Church history tells about a man named Polycarp who was discipled, many believe, by the Apostle John. And he gives us a great model in this. The church historian Eusebius, who lived in the third century, tells of how Polycarp escaped the Romans time and time and time again. He tried to keep himself alive so that he could preach the gospel and disciple and train believers. But when the Romans finally had him trapped, they finally had him backed in the corner. They found out where he was after he had been betrayed. They surrounded the house in which he was staying. They told the old 80-year-old man to come out. We found you. They gave him an opportunity to deny Christ. And Polycarp, he had followed the words of Jesus for years and had run for his life. But when he knew he had been caught and when he was asked to deny Christ, history tells us he said these words, 80 years I have served Christ. He has always done me well. How could I deny him now? And we see Jesus encouraging Christians to preserve their lives as long as possible. And we ask the question, why? Why did Jesus want the early church to stay alive as long as possible? One answer, he knew they had a job to do. They had a mission. Ephesians 2.20, the Lord knew that upon the rock of the apostles, he wanted to build his church. We have great end times truth for us. A great lesson from Jesus. Let's not forget he's paid for our sins. But let's also not forget Mark 16, 15. He's called us as believers, not just to be Christian spectators at church on Sunday morning. He's called us each to have a commitment to go into all the world and proclaim the good news. He's called us, Acts 1-8, to be witnesses for him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Can I ask you this morning, are you owning up to the job you've got to do? Are you making connections and building relationships at work in your neighborhood? Are you putting people on your prayer list and praying for their eternal souls? Are you diligent to have a system and a strategy to regularly give out tracts, share the gospel, and get involved in your community to rub shoulders with people who don't know Christ with the aim of inviting them to church, of sharing the gospel with them? 
Are you a Sunday morning spectator or are you involved in our ministries here that seek to get the good news of Jesus to this community and this world? What part are you playing? Ask yourself that question right now and hear the words of Jesus and know he wants you to be engaged. Lessons from the future. Jesus has paid for our sins. We've got a job to do. Number three this morning, I want you to see that no matter how bad things get, we are safe in Jesus. In verse 17, what great words for the current times in which we live in. Jesus says, woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Why? The word woe is not a positive word. We might use it to say, man, guys, we see a nice car. Whoa. In Jesus' day, it's not a good word. It means something bad is going to happen. It's a pronouncement of pity and judgment mixed together. Jesus says, woe to the pregnant women. Why? It's going to be hard for them to run for their lives. It's going to be hard for them to stop and feed their children. Jesus says, pray it won't happen in winter. Why? The Judean mountainsides were filled with snow during the winter months. First century people weren't accustomed to living in frigid conditions in Judea. Furthermore, during the wintertime, the wadis and the creeks swelled with water and it would have made running and traveling very difficult for people who were trying to flee from Titus and his invading hordes. Historians speculate, Josephus speculate, speculated that there were nearly 1.1 million people killed during Titus' siege. He tells that 97,000 Jews were carried off as slaves in this thing called the abomination of desolation. So you can see why Jesus is saying, Whoa, something horrible is about to happen. Can you imagine a million people dying in our very state? In a matter of weeks here in Georgia, can you imagine 97,000 being carried off captive to a foreign country as slaves? These are horrible and horrific things. And in the midst of such tragedy, in the midst of such injustice, in the midst of it feeling like the whole world is falling apart, Jesus speaks of the elect. Look at what he says in verse number 20. He said, if the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Notice what Jesus is saying here. These people called the elect, these people called the ones he chose, are regarded as being safe throughout this time of trouble and tribulation. We know that Jesus' words had a near fulfillment. They were fulfilled in the first century. Roman, Revelation chapter 13, 1 through 17 teaches us that there is yet a third abomination of desolation coming to planet Earth. There will be a future world religious leader, tag team with the future world political leader, and they will lead the world to follow an ungodly, unjust, perverted government and state religion and we know that times according to 2nd Timothy 3 13 will grow increasingly worse until that day 
There will be days in which we feel like we could cry with Jesus, woe, woe, woe. But notice that Jesus gives a great promise towards those he calls the elect, the ones whom he chose. Now, this word elect causes debate, to say the least. Some preachers are even afraid to preach a verse like this for fear of being misunderstood. This word elect, however, is one that we see throughout Scripture used as a designation, a descriptor for God's people. You see it being used of the Jews and the Old Testament, God's choice people. You see it also, you can't make a mistake about it, it is used regularly in the New Testament of Christians as well. What does this word mean? Well, I'll say first and foremost, I ain't got it all figured out. I'm not going to be of the lot who pretends like I know of all of the intricacies involved with this thing. If you think you've got it figured all out this morning, Congratulations, we're so proud of you. Wish I had a free t-shirt to give you. I do know this about this word. It depicts the way in which we are God's covenant people. Through the blood of Jesus, he has entered into an agreement with us whereby he has cleansed us of his sin, of our sins. I know also that this word speaks of us being the apple of his eye, his choice and cherished people. He loves us with an everlasting love and he views us when he sees us compared to all of humanity as being special because we have been set apart unto him. This word reminds us of God's great love for us and his everlasting concern and care for us. This word reminds us that we are safe in the arms of our heavenly Father and he views us as being his. And his seal of approval is upon us because of Christ. I think of it like this. One of my first jobs was at the Roadhouse Grill in Sandy Springs, Georgia. It's no longer open. It had nothing to do with me and my quality of service. But I remember getting a job at that place, and I'd never been much of a steak eater, and I had to go through a class learning all about steaks. Never knew the difference between a New York strip and a ribeye, filet mignon, prime rib. I used to remember the butcher, the man who worked there, cutting the steaks, uh, leading this class where he put all of the cuts of meat on the table, and we saw the marbling of the fat. And we had the lowest steak on the menu, apart from the ground hamburger steak. We had a sirloin, eight-ounce sirloin. If you wanted a sirloin that was a little bit better, you could get the 10-ounce sirloin that was called a choice sirloin. Choice. I always preferred the ribeye. You couldn't put any adjective in front of sirloin that made it better than a ribeye for me. But we had a choice, sirloin. It was special. It was a select cut of meat. It was better. We think of this word choice and elect in the Bible. 
oftentimes we get so caught up on the action that we forget that there's an adjective here that defines us and describes us as being God's choice, select, beloved, and cherished people. And what a promise that no matter how bad the world gets, no matter how perverted American society becomes, no matter who sits in the White House, no matter the tragedies, no matter mass shootings, no matter what's being taught in our schools, no matter the state of our churches, we know this, we are still God's covenant choice people. And we rest secure in his hands and we know no one can snatch us out of his hands. And we know that Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And we know, Philippians 1, he who has begun a good work in us will carry it on till the day of Christ Jesus. And this world's not our home. We're just passing through. So when we're overwhelmed with care and concern, we can lift up our eyes to the hills from which cometh our strength and know that our hope is not in this world. It's in the world to come. No matter how bad things get, we are safe. And Jesus. Lastly, our text reminds us that we must not get sidetracked by the world. What great lessons from the future. And Jesus closes by saying, Then, if anyone tells you, See, here is the Messiah. See there. Don't believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. You must watch. I've told you everything in advance. Watch. Jesus uses that great Greek word translated watch, which means be careful, look out. Jesus' words had a near fulfillment. 1 John chapter 2 teaches us that during the first century, there were numerous antichrists, false Christs, trying to deceive people. Historians tell us that at the time of Titus' siege, why did the Jews hold out so long? There were so many liars saying, I'm the Messiah. That word Messiah spoke of a rescuer or a deliverer. And Jesus wanted people living in the first century to know, don't listen to people who will tell you they'll save you from Rome and Titus. I was the Messiah And I was rejected and I paid for sins and you won't be fully delivered until I return again. There was a near meaning, but there's a far meaning as well. Revelation chapter 13 tells us that at the end of time there will be a two-headed monster, the false prophet and the false Christ, who will promise to humankind in the midst of cataclysmic world events, deliverance, rescue, and safety what will make so many people follow a one world government with a one world religion look at what's going on in the world people will be glad to follow an antichrist who offers solutions to the mess we're in and jesus says don't believe them don't follow them realize in the midst of many people telling you they'll be your rescuer or deliverer that you've got one to rescue rescuer You've got one deliverer, and his name is Jesus. And you've got his word left for you to be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. So don't get sidetracked. Don't become deceived. Don't get caught up in this weird, extra-biblical Christian teaching that's all about making you 
healthy, wealthy, and wise. Stick with the old book and the plain gospel. Don't look to government and some world ruler to give you peace and prosperity. And know that your help cometh from the maker of the heavens and the earth. You've got one deliverer. You've got one Messiah. There's one King of kings and Lord of lords. And his name's Jesus Christ. Worship him. Get your life priorities right and live for him and let him alone. Be faithful to worship in the house of God and to be a part of the church. Have a daily time of worship. Pray. Read your Bible. Schedule your life with thought for King Jesus. Work to be a witness in your neighborhood and at work. Regularly gather with God's people to get the encouragement you need. Share the gospel and make disciples. Don't get sidetracked by this world and all of the petty, endless, pointless debates. Be a Christian first. And know that you have a Messiah and a deliverer in Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us online at tabernaclebaptist.org. Thanks for listening.